in the middle of the night, I woke up because I heard this loud sound and this flash of red light in my room. And I was staying in a room that had absolutely no windows. So I have no idea what that was, but it did scare the shit out of me. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's what happened to me while we were out there. Ladies and gentlemen, you You know, a lot of people out there think if they talk about it, that this thing is going to come back. And there are a lot of people that have kind of locked this away in their past, and they do not want to talk about it. Uh, it's like surviving a car crash. No one wants to really revisit that. Wow. Is he doing okay now, or is he sort of uh, just rocking? He's in jail. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, he is, uh, you know, basically got arrested for stalking Ivanka Trump. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Kicking off the summer with a big interview, we get a ton more awesome conversations in line for you during the summer. Stay tuned to the end of the program for an update on those and a whole slew of BOA in-house notes. But we really want to get into the episode right away. Before I do that, of course, let's plug the man who provided the music for this episode, Pete Diggins. His website is orophonic.com, www.auropohonic.com. Check out his stuff, and if you are a musician who is listening and you want to contribute a tune to BOA Audio, we're still looking for them. We are putting them in the back burner right now while we straighten out all the in-house stuff, but we're definitely going to get to them, I promise. So for those folks who have sent stuff in, sit tight. And for the folks who may still want to contribute something to the show, shoot us a line at boaaudio at hotmail.com. Now that we've taken care of that bit of business, let's get cooking on this installment of BOA Audio. We are kicking off our summer session by welcoming filmmakers Matthew J. Palowski and Anastasia Constantino for a conversation about their film Eyes of the Mothman. This movie really has created quite a buzz in the world of esoterica, and we're going to delve into a whole bunch of areas surrounding the film. Not just the content of the film, not just the Mothman mystery, which we will examine, of course, in great detail, but we'll also hear a number of bizarre stories from the making of the movie, as well as a whole bunch of weird stuff that happened to the folks who made Eyes of the Mothman after they finished filming the movie. Really creepy stuff in there. During the conversation, we go down a whole bunch of different side rows. You're going to hear about UFOs, MIBs, alien contact tales, and Ivanka Trump. That's a little of a wild card one we threw in there, but you're going to hear... A crazy story involving Ivanka Trump. Altogether, really, it is a fun and informative look at one of Esoterica's most enigmatic mysteries, The Mothman, with a pair of curious and talented outsiders who documented their investigation in a truly remarkable film, talking about Eyes of the Mothman. Given that this is a double guest episode and the BOA Audio audience has been waiting far too long, for another installment of the program, we're going to skip the bios 
or Matthew J. Pulowski and Anastasia Constantino. Of course, you can find those at Banal of America, and we definitely want to plug the website for the film, www.eyesofthemothman.com. Pretty simple, all one word, eyesofthemothman.com. Check it out. And with all that said, folks, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on March 23rd, 2011. Matthew J. Pulowski and Anastasia Constantino talking about the film Eyes of the Mothman and the Mothman Mythos on BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. This week on the program, we're going to be exploring the Mothman mystery with uh, two folks who are behind a recent film that just came out. It's getting a lot of buzz in the esoteric community, and I'm talking about the film Eyes of the Mothman. It's from Redline Studios, and with us here to discuss it is the writer, producer, and director, Matthew Pulowski, and the executive producer, Anastasia Constantino. And we're going to be talking about the movie, how they ended up making the movie, some of the stuff that's in the movie, and uh, some of the fallout from the movie, which is pretty uh, intriguing as well. So welcome to the program, Matthew and Anastasia. Thank you. It's good to be here. And as I told uh, these guys right before we started the show, I, I just finished the movie this afternoon. I really liked it quite a bit. It's uh, really authoritative and long in a good way. It's packed with stuff, so I highly recommend folks pick it up, check it out for sure. Well, let's start with you, Matt. Uh, we like to, you know, kind of kick off the interview with some bio background. You know, who are these people that we we're bringing onto the show to talk to the folks out there? So, you know, tell us about you. And how you got interested in this story and, and you know, how, how you ended up, you know, stalking the Mothman, if you will. Well, I've always kind of had a personal interest in the uh, paranormal. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey in a very, very old house. And as a young kid, you know, we'd see a lot of weird things, hear a lot of weird things. And it kind of piqued my interest. And so at an early age, I started researching the paranormal, uh, writing about it. Uh, as I got into my early teens and, and uh, or late teens and early 20s, I started working as a, a freelance writer for different paranormal magazines. Uh, so it's something that's always kind of been interesting to me. Uh, as I became uh, a professional filmmaker, you know, I, I, at times I would look to kind of merge those two loves of the paranormal and filmmaking. So this is kind of one of those projects that have stemmed from that. Um, you know, I kind of for years would write about paranormal things, working on various magazines, and then one day I kind of stumbled across the story of the Mothman, and I was uh, surprised that I'd never heard of this story with so many peculiar things that happened in, in one kind of close duration of time. Uh, so it made me kind of investigate further. Um, I read the uh, very popular book by John Keel, and after reading that, I thought that it would be the perfect kind of project to uh, make in documentary form. Nice, nice. And how about you, Anastasia? Now, you said uh, before we, we did the interview, you sent me a little you know, background information. said you really kind of weren't really interested in the paranormal before you got mixed yes. up in all this. So uh, how, did, uh, how did this all unfold for you? Well, um, I, didn't, I didn't know anything about Mothman, you know, was not at all into paranormal. You know, I, I like watching horror movies. That's about it. Um, but then Matt kind of came to me and said, you know, I'd re- I'm really interested in doing this. It's about this town in West Virginia. And I, you know, asked him, you know, what the story was. And when he started talking about it, I thought it was, I just thought the whole thing was really cool. And I looked into, like, the history of the town. And I thought just overall it was, you know, something that I kind of wanted to work on. And uh, I don't know, I just I got interested. It, it's mostly just through Matt, just from, you know, him telling me about it. 
um, he kind of, he, I'm not going to say he talked me into it, but just his enthusiasm about the whole thing just kind of made me, you know, want to get on board. Yeah, it was infectious, if you will, right? Right. There you go. So, so do you end, end up kind of like, uh, I wouldn't say become a believer, but you sort of uh, gave it more credence, I guess you could say, uh, as you went along making this movie with, with Matt? Yeah, before we started production on the movie, we kind of went out there just to, like, look around, meet a few people that were involved. I didn't really have many expectations. Um, you know, anytime you hear about people seeing, you know, monsters and demons and stuff, you always think, okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> and then I was just like, all right, who are we going to meet out there in Point Pleasant, you know? And then we went there, and just all these people that we started talking to just seemed so genuine. And, you know, they just seemed like they really believed what they were saying. So it was just, it made me believe their stories. Um, you know, and none of them said, you know, I saw this monster and it was definitely a monster and it was a demon. They just pretty much said, this is what I saw. You know, this is what it looked like. I don't know what it was. Draw your own conclusion. Um, and that's kind of, I think, what made me, I, I guess, believe them and just not just kind of set, push them aside and think, you know, these people are crazy. Yeah. Now, Matt, for, for the folks who are kind of just joining us here and, and uh, you know, they're only sort of vaguely know about the Mothman story or maybe even haven't heard about it before, why don't you just give us sort of a thumbnail look at, you know, what the Mothman story is? Sure. I think there's actually, you know, if you ask anybody about the Mothman, uh, you'll probably get either two versions of the story. Um, you know, the more kind of mainstream, the more popular thing that will be talked about right away when someone says Mothman is that for about a year's period of time in a small town in West Virginia uh, by the name of Point Pleasant, people were witnessing what they described as a, almost a, an angel or a man with wings, um, had red eyes, uh, was about six feet tall. And this thing uh, wasn't kind of just like a flash in the forest or, you know, people were seeing it at a great distance. This thing was uh, an up-close and personal uh, um, eyewitness accounts. Uh, this thing would chase people. It would chase cars. People were hunting it, looking for it. You know, it was a kind of mass hysteria event uh, in, in the 1966, between 1966 and 67 in West Virginia. Um, that's kind of the most direct kind of answer, I guess you could say, for people who are unfamiliar with the Mothman. It's similar to a Bigfoot sighting, but a little bit more spiritual and a little bit more kind of um, crosses over into different realms of, you know, the paranormal or spirituality. And there's a lot of people who don't know what this thing was, but it was a, a creature of some sort, uh, best described, I guess, as a man with wings, uh, red eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, the kind of, for anyone who kind of has researched the subject a little bit more or who has kind of... Uh, taking the time to kind of see what this is, what really kind of went on out there. Um, Mothman is much more than the actual monster that was spotted. This town for decades has had kind of unusual phenomenon, uh, you know, tragedies and occurrences go on there, curses, fires, floods, uh, just UFO sightings, men in black sightings, um, uh, UFOs, uh, sorry, uh, ghosts, uh, haunted houses, Everything under the sun paranormal has kind of gone on in Point Pleasant at one time or the other. And a lot of people kind of group all of this together as kind of the collective story of Mothman. So Mothman kind of transcends just the event itself of the creature being spotted and kind of connects into a broader kind of history of this town uh, in terms of the paranormal out there. Yeah, yeah. It's like a window zone. It is, yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of people kind of, you know, there, there's a bridge that fell in 1967 where... 46 people were killed 
And, uh, you know, there are many people that will say that's part of the Mothman story just because, you know, it was kind of unusual circumstances. You know, there are other people that will say it had nothing to do with it. But, you know, I think for the more researcher, uh, Mothman kind of means this collective uh, events uh, that have gone on there for years. Right, right, exactly, yeah. Now, what I what I liked a lot about the film, too, was uh, it just didn't sort of, like, throw you into the Mothman frenzy right away. It sort of set the stage a little bit with some more of the background about this town. Obviously, uh, the, there's a lot of Native American stuff going on there, and uh, we'll leave some. Obviously, we're not going <laughs> to give away the whole movie here for you, but I wanted to touch on some of the areas that I thought were really interesting. The, the, the whole uh, thing about the TNT factory was something that I'd never even heard of before, and I found that to be pretty amazing and makes you kind of wonder, you know, if there's some kind of seed there that involves itself in this whole thing in the long run, if you will. So I guess talk a little bit about that aspect that uh, there was this TNT factory. and It was really kind of a secret base, if you will, for a while uh, during the war. Yes. Um, it, there's, as I just mentioned in terms of, you know, uh, Mothman being kind of a greater whole of these things, there, there are many little pockets of stories and events that have gone on here that, you know, share a lot of strange coincidences. I mean, the first uh, sighting, or one of the first sightings of the Mothman was at this TNT plant years later after it had been abandoned and kind of decommissioned. Uh, but during its heyday, uh, this uh, government facility, uh, during World War II, it was the, um, the main manufacturing plant of all of the bombs that were used in World War II. So, you know, aside from some of this weird paranormal history that this town has, it also has some definitive historical uh, importance in the, the history of the United States uh, with little things like this that you'll continually find. So here, this town in the middle of nowhere, you know, that kind of no one's ever heard of, is this manufacturing plant where almost every bomb used in World War II or dropped in World War II came out of this place. Uh, and, and why that's kind of significant to the Mothman story is because there are a lot of people that felt that this government uh, facility kind of did a little bit more than just manufacture bombs. There are, there are rumors of kind of experimental testing that went on there. And then later on uh, in the 80s, it was uh, discovered that there was uh, chemical leaks from this plant into a bird sanctuary uh, to where mutations of animals were found, uh, mutated fish. A lot of people thought there would be mutated birds out there. And then, of course, eventually when Mothman comes along, you know, uh, or, or when Mothman uh, is when Mothman is cited in the 60s. You know, it's later on in the 80s when people discovered that there was contamination. That people started to maybe piece together the possibility of was this some kind of a, a mutated bird or animal, or was it some kind of you know government engineered creature? Uh, when kind of rumors started to leak out of possibly some government conspiracy stuff uh, going on here, or you know a little bit uh, of experimental testing going on at this plant. And and I was doing some research here on you guys uh, before the interview, and I, I stumbled upon this article that said that you had recurring dreams of the TNT facility before you went down to Point Pleasant uh, and, and discovered that's what you were dreaming about? Yeah, you know, this that was, there, there were some weird things that went on with us personally, uh, all of the crew members that were involved with this project. But for me, uh, that, that kind of uh, quote comes from me where um, – you know, just forever, I've always had kind of a lot of uh, reoccurring dreams, strange dreams. And as a kid, I would always dream about this weird kind of facility right on the banks of a really big river. Uh, you know, before this trip, I had never been to West Virginia or Ohio, so I had never been to that region before. Uh, and then, you know, it didn't really hit me until after we had gone there. Um, after we had done our preliminary filming, 
I had come back and I was doing some more research on the subject, and I was researching the Ohio River, which is kind of uh, a lot of strange activity has always been uh, circulated around that uh, kind of landmark. And I came across this article, and I don't remember where it was from, but it was a, a psychological test um, to where basically it was a bunch of people in Japan that were having strange experiences, and they were dreaming about a river, and they were showing them rivers all around the world to try to identify which one it was, and everybody was identifying uh, the Ohio River. So it was this article just about for that uh, a study that was being done that there are many people that actually dream about the Ohio River that don't realize they're dreaming about it, and then once they see the Ohio River, they realize that's the river for my dream. And as soon as I read that article, I kind of just a light bulb went on in my head. I was like, oh, my God, that – that that's my dream. I have this dream, and then we had just gotten back from shooting, and I realized that this building that's always in my dream is the building we had just filmed. I didn't even realize it until after the fact. Weird. It was very strange. What do you make of that, Anastasia? Um, well, I didn't have any dreams, but <laughs> while we were there, um, we did stay at the Low Hotel um, in Point Pleasant, which is um, a pretty well-known hotel. Um, there's a lot of, um, I guess they say there's a lot of like paranormal activity and stuff that goes on there. Um, but we did stay there. And in the middle of the night, I woke up because I heard this loud sound and this flash of red light in my room. And I was staying in a room that had absolutely no windows. So I have no idea what that was, but it did scare the shit out of me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's about that. That's what happened to me while we were out there. Yeah, it sounds like you guys had some weird, uh, some weird experiences making the movie and trying to get the movie made. It sounds like how long did it take the movie to get done? Like six years or something like that? It did. Yeah, it took about five years, I want to say, um, and uh, most of it just for reasons that were out of our hands. I mean, you know, the filming of the program took about a month. Um, you know, preparation took a few months. Uh, research and, and, and such, but uh, as soon as we were done with the program, I actually got very sick. I mean, I mean, I'm talking like the day we got back to New York, uh, I got very ill, and um, I went to the doctor, and they thought that I had pneumonia, and, and eight, literally for eight months, I was sick to where I couldn't work, couldn't leave the house, couldn't get out of bed. I mean, it was it was pretty bad. So I mean, eight months right off the bat were were gone just from me having a pneumonia. And it just got to be weird. And I'm, I'm, you know, you mentioned earlier about the the cornstalk curse, which is the Native American curse that a lot of people kind of believe in out there. And at first glance, it's kind of, you know, you think, oh, well, that's silly. But, you know, I, when you're sitting at home after just filming a movie about curses and it hits like month seven and the doctor tells you we have no idea why you're not getting better, you know, those ideas of curses and things start to enter your mind and you go, well, I wonder if there's anything to this. Um, so, yeah, there was – there was some of that, um, and then also just footage that we shot would get deleted off the hard drives. We lost the animation twice. Uh, actually, we named every hard drive after portions of the film, and the Cornstalk Curse hard drive constantly would, would fail and cost us almost a year of time as well because we lost all of the animation twice on that hard drive. Oh, man, that must be maddening because I know how long it takes for the animation to do on those kind of projects. Oh, yeah, it, it you know, it was starting to drive us crazy, and we were starting to think if uh, we could, ever, if we we're ever going to get this done. I mean, because when you're out there, there are people that say, you know, there are people that warn you legitimately. They they say, you know, be careful with this stuff. You know, we live out here, we see the effects of what goes on, and you know, you're playing with fire, and you kind of take it as a, a grain of salt uh, uh, when you're kind of first out there. But you know, 
you kind of change your perspective on things when, when a lot of weird stuff starts to happen. I think, you know, like the Mothman story that we covered, what happens is, you know, one coincidence is one thing, but then when you start to get into like five, 10, 15 little weird coincidences and, you know, you start to kind of associate them all together and you wonder, you know, how many coincidences does it take to kind of make it a fact? And, and when you went down there, what, I presume it's sort of like a, a Roswell-esque, if you will, where this this Mothman sort of dominates the the mood of of the town. Is that fairly accurate? Would you say? I mean, is it sort of like that's their claim to fame nowadays? I think so. Uh, I mean, Mothman is definitely. I mean, they have the Mothman Museum, and there's um, there's just it's it's pretty much everywhere. I mean, they sell merchandise in all the places and stuff. I mean, a lot of people definitely visit the town because of Mothman, and so they're. They're, I guess, trying to make the most out of, out of, you know, all the events that had happened. Um, so, yeah, I would, I would think so, yeah. Well, what's the mood like of the people in the town? Are they sort of like, is it, I, I, I'm going to assume it's sort of like a cross-section where some people are sort of like, yay, we, we're the Mothman town, and then other people are like, oh, man, we don't want to be the Mothman town. Is it sort I of feel like, like that? I, <laughs> I feel like it's kind of an age thing. Like, the older people definitely have learned to embrace it, um, you know, I guess the town gets a lot of tourists because of it, and so it helps, the Mothman definitely helps, helps, um, you know, the economy of the town and stuff like that, but the younger people are just kind of like, you know, get out of our town, <laughs> um, you know. Oh, wow. So, so I, I, I would think, I get the sense that it's more of like an age thing, like the older people definitely have learned to deal with it, and the younger people are just kind of, you know. Blase. Yeah, I, I guess pretty much like every other teenage teenager <laughs> in every other town. Yeah, I would expect it almost to be the opposite, but I guess the older folks were there when it all went down, so they yeah. probably you know remember it and everything. Now, yeah, definitely. So yeah, I presume it's a mixed bag. It is a mixed. Bag. I mean, there are, there were younger generations that we met out there too, though, that were kind of uh, you know a little more into it than others. I think it's it, it's about a fifty fifty. Um, but I will say what they they do advertise Mothman stuff, and it is kind of a little bit like Roswell. I have not been to Roswell, uh, but I will say, like, in, in knowing people that have been out there, I would say the one difference, though, is that in Point Pleasant, you know, what they've tried to do is is kind of embrace it as just a weird history. Like, th there's a lot of history to that area, you know, uh, going back to the American Revolution and even some of the things we talked about, about, you know, the influence in World War II. There's a lot of rich history in that area. And I think what they've tried to do, though, is just is just not kind of pretend as if this didn't happen, because it was a very long period of time of unusual events. And I think it just took some time for people to kind of accept the fact that, you know, that we should embrace all kinds of history, whether it's weird and wacky and unusual or not. And I think that's kind of become a little bit more mainstream now out there to where, you know, it's done in a, a little more respectful, I think, manner that it's uh, not really trying to convince any of any, anybody of anything, but just kind of embracing the collective history of the area, be it the you know, legitimate kind of fact, uh, historical things and the, you know, a little bit more folklore, uh, unusual stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. And I thought it was uh, – I'm going to jump around a little bit here, but I, at the end of the movie, one of the ladies uh, – I, I didn't catch her name, but she sort of puts forward the idea that she believes that the government got it, that the government captured the Mothman somehow, and she wishes they would just tell us what it was or something like that. Is, is that a predominant opinion around there, or is that sort of rare? I mean, I'd never even heard that perspective from anybody that that maybe the government actually captured the Mothman. So, I mean, talk a little bit about that if you heard that rumor at all. It's, it's, I'd say it's not a, a widespread rumor, but, you know, what, 
what I found interesting out there is, you know, for all of for for every one person we interviewed for the film, there was probably at least five to ten people that we met that were credible, that had interesting things to say, but refused to be interviewed, uh, mostly out of fear. I mean, there was one person we spoke to who is an older gentleman, very nice guy. Uh, he kind of helped out with a, some of the archival research parts of the film. And one thing that he said uh, to me, and very, very serious, very dead serious, and very, you can even tell he's still intimidated by it. But he said, I used to work at that, that facility and it, not everything that they advertised that went on there went on there. There was more to what meets the eye to that building. And he also went on to tell me that that when he was working there, what he had always heard is that the same people that built that building were the same people that had built, you know, the infamous Area 51. So um, in kind of these pockets, there are these little kind of, uh, you know, gossip that goes on. So that kind of story of, you know, the kind of government conspiracy story was not as widespread, but in terms of the town, uh, there were little chit-chats about that, and, and people who took it very serious, you know, who approached us about it, uh, but, you know, would not come on camera and talk about it. Um, and I think you also have to consider the fact that, you know, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base is very close to Point Pleasant, and that forever has been a long, you know, uh, stereotyped kind of government facility associated with conspiracy and extraterrestrials and unusual events. And that's only a stone's throw away from Point Pleasant and, uh, you know, the Ohio River. I, I also, uh, one thing I do know about the Ohio River is that the government has used the Ohio River uh, historically as a landmark uh, for testing new aircraft, where if any, you know, uh, functions on an aircraft um, becomes disabled, you can always kind of use the Ohio River as a landmark to know your north and south and east and west. So I do know that the government has constantly used that area for testing of aircraft. Um, so I think some of that also helps this part of the story of the government kind of conspiracy mothman creature that kind of maybe got loose or was captured. Interesting, yeah. Interesting. Very weird. Now, uh, also here in these articles that I read about the making of the movie, it says you guys had some kind of encounter with uh, some men who would fit the description of Men in Black. And it was both of you guys, uh, Matt and Anastasia. So, Anastasia, well, you're, you're, so I, I take you to be the more skeptical of the two. So why don't, why don't you tell us this story, uh, and we'll get your take on what happened. Okay, so I'm skeptical, but this was creepy. Um, so I, I don't remember exactly because it was a while ago, but Matt and I were by the Ohio River. We were shooting something. Um, I think we were time-lapse or something. I don't, I don't remember, but it just involved us setting up the camera and kind of just sitting there and just waiting. Mm -hmm. um, and there were these two guys who came up in a car. I don't remember what kind of car it was, um, but they drove up and they asked us. They were, like, asking just about the town, and they were asking about the Mothman. There's a Mothman statue in the town. They were asking about, like, the Mothman statue, and they were acting as if they had no idea why the town was popular and, like, why people knew about the town. Mm -hmm. And we were just kind of talking about it. But they just seemed strange. Like, they were in the town. They mentioned that they were there for the Mothman, but then later on contradicted themselves and said that they didn't know why the town, like, they didn't know anything about the Mothman. I don't know. The, just the entire encounter was just really creepy and weird. And when they when they were talking to us, I just remember thinking, okay, I'm not going to tell them too much because this is just really weird. And then they, they drove away, and I just turned to Matt, and I was like, do you sense anything about what just happened, and he's like, men in black. <laughs> it was just like really, really strange. Um, I, yeah, I, I wish I remembered it a lot better, but I just remember 
being really creeped out by these two guys. Maybe they erased your memory. <laughs> Maybe they did. <laughs> yeah, it was unusual. We were filming. We were filming the bridge for one of the bridge sequences, and it was we were we were filming on a dead end road, and a car pulled up behind us, and one of them said, "You know, what in the world would you want to film a bridge for?" And uh, it was just kind of a weird way of. You could tell that was just the way he said it. He was trying to get information of yeah. what we were doing. I mean, we we kind of engaged them in conversation a little bit. I mean, we didn't really. I personally didn't uh, think of them as like men in black until they had left because I, I was just like, oh my god, like that was like a man in black encounter. I mean, you know, you hear so much about it, you talk to people about it, uh, but you know, we did. We caught them in multiple lies. They would say, you know, uh, they were they were kind of just dressed weird. They, they, they were two people that didn't even seem like you know if they if they were friends, you would you know it didn't seem like two people that would be friends with each other. They were kind of just extremely opposite people in a car in terms of personality type. And they were asking us tons of questions, you know, why we were here, what were we doing here, uh, you know, why would we want to waste our time filming something so weird. And then they would say they were in town for the Mothman Festival, and then they would ask us what it is. And it was very contradictory and strange. And then I do also remember they, they, they said that they worked at a chemical plant like 30 miles north, and then five minutes later they said they were from uh, – they were from St. Louis. Huh. Uh, so they would constantly contradict contradict themselves, uh, and it was weird. It was weird. I mean, it was kind of like a I call a modern-day man in black type of sighting. You know, it wasn't uh, government uh, agent suits with, with glasses, but it was two strange people that kind of came out of nowhere, asked a bunch of weird questions, you know, a little too personal questions, wanted to know who we were, what we were doing and why, and then, uh, you know, just odd behavior, and then, then they were just gone. Weird. Jeez, that is really strange. Yeah, instead of suits, they had khakis and polos on. <laughs> I remember that for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> strange, which stands out. Yeah, well, I thought that was interesting, too. You, you, you guys do a great job in the movie of uh, sort of examining some of the other strange sort of fringe aspects of, of the Mothman story. Like a lot of people, like I said, I only sort of vaguely looked at the Mothman legend, if you will, and I didn't realize, you know, first of all, how how seriously rampant the UFO activity was compared to the Mothman sightings. I think somebody in the movie said it was like far and away more UFO sightings at the time than the Mothman sightings. Yeah, a lot of people we spoke with said that, you know, Mothman kind of gets all the headlines and attention just because of the strange nature of it. But, you know, in, in the months to years before Mothman was spotted and afterward, there has always been a lot of UFO activity in that area. I mean, during the height of the Mothman sightings as well, there was uh, – probably the most frequent number of UFO sightings. I mean, we spoke to a lot of uh, journalists and uh, reporters from newspapers in that area at the time. I mean, it got to be the point where they set up a specific desk just for phone calls about UFOs that, that, would, uh, that people would call in just trying to find uh, information of what was going on. I mean, it was kind of a constant barrage of, of sightings uh, on a nightly basis for over a year's period of time. And, and all of them, uh, you know, not every one of them was, you know, a kind of distant light in the sky. Some of these were, again, like the Mothman, up close, you know, uh, craft, daytime sightings, you know, sightings on the road. Uh, it wasn't always just kind of your streak of light in the sky, you know, what was that? It, it was a lot of mixed variety of, of, of aircraft and phenomena. And I think also that's where, you know, some of the uh, Mothman extraterrestrial kind of correlation comes from because it wasn't just this weird monster in the woods. You know, people would see a UFO fly over a, 
uh, a wooded area, and then minutes later, spot the Mothman. So a lot of these connections started to be made just because they were all kind of being seen together. But it was very frequent, the, the UFO sighting. Right, right. Yeah, you do seem to get that connection that a lot of people make, and that would, be, that would explain it. It's not just like this was like a Bigfoot-like creature. It was like there, there was a lot of high strangeness going on around it at the same time, so people sort of lump it all together as one, if you will. Yeah, I think what's important to note also about the the UFO sightings, you know, these sightings were reported from pretty reputable people. You know, these were uh, there were police officers. Uh, I mean, one major sighting uh, was even from an ex-military from the Navy who worked on an aircraft carrier whose job was to kind of spot incoming aircraft with with by the naked eye and determine what it is. You know, so you have people like that kind of reporting things. You know, people that have legitimate training in, uh, you know, spotting aircraft, uh, reporting unusual things. And I think the other important kind of factor to kind of not leave out is that, uh, you know, these are, these are country uh, folks. These are people that kind of, you know, the, when you're, I kind of grew up on a farm, and when you are from the country, you become used to weird things, you know, uh, in terms of natural things. So, you know, you kind of learn to identify shooting stars, you know, swamp gas, aurora uh, borealis, weird things like that that are natural. And these people, you know, were always kind of reporting things that were outside of the spectrum of what they understood to be normal. So, you know, the, you know, not everyone was an expert, but they were kind of keen on what a lot of UFOs kind of get uh, misconstrued as, you know, the, the natural phenomenon, the swamp gas, you know, the shooting star, things like that. You've kind of got witnesses that kind of across the board, ex-military, you know, uh, hunters, people that spend time in the wilderness at night, you know, reporting unusual activity. And I think that says something, you know, uh, to the fact that, you know, there was something legitimately out of the ordinary kind of being witnessed in the skies uh, in Point Pleasant during this time. Now, obviously, this thing exploded like in the, in 66 and into 67. And a lot of people obviously uh, tied in with the bridge collapse in December of 67. Could you follow like a trend or a pattern with the Mothman sightings? Like, did they actually peak towards that? when the bridge collapsed and then stop right afterwards because that's the sort of urban legend that, that you know, people saw the Mothman for, for a year and then the bridge collapsed and then they never saw him again. What's the, what's the accurate portrayal of how it went down? I'd say that is pretty accurate. I mean, uh, from most of the research that we've done uh, in terms of uh, archives and what's available, I mean, if you look at the newspaper reports, there are, there are newspaper reports on a daily basis of Mothman and UFOs you know, throughout the entire year of uh, 66, leading into 67. Uh, and then as you get to uh, December of 67, when the bridge falls, uh, when the bridge falls, you know, I mean, one would argue, okay, did the bridge fall and now kind of the focus of the media and the people, did that go on to the, the tragedy and, and the mourning of, of, of losing friends and loved ones? And is that why, you know, this stuff stopped being reported or did it legitimately stop, you know, was it, was it less frequent? I mean, that's something we'll never know, but for sure there is a, a track record and a, and a trace of it that shows, you know, people stopped reporting on this, people stopped seeing things, you know, shortly after this tragedy happened. I mean, there were people that reported that they saw lights above the bridge, that they saw the Mothman on the bridge the day before. There's another report that people saw government-type people uh, inspecting the bridge in the weeks before. But once that bridge falls and collapses, it's kind of like uh, the, the case is kind of closed. Things disappear, people stop seeing things, and all of the paranormal activity dies down uh, very abruptly, and, and it's just not there. 
And we're talking like 45 years ago now. Has the Mothman showed up again in Point Pleasant at all in, in the ensuing four and a half decades? Did it, was there another flap at all? I don't think anything that can be uh, considered uh, seriously. You know, I think that there's a lot of people that want to see something, that want to have an experience. You know, there's been some hokey photographs taken and some YouTube videos up and stuff like that since then. But, I mean, I, there hasn't, in my opinion, been you know, a, a legitimate case uh, since 66 and 67. Uh, you know, since that time uh, in Point Pleasant, uh, there has not really been what I would call any legitimate sightings or any, any evidence of any sightings. Um, you know, like I said, I think there are people that kind of want to see something and want to believe. There are a lot of people that are going to try to convince you they saw something. But, you know, I don't think there's been anything reported uh, to the legitimacy of what was going on in 66 and 67. I do know uh, it's not something that I'm currently up to speed on, but I do know, you know, that uh, obviously a lot of people will argue that, you know, sightings of the Mothman or a giant bird or a thunderbird, as they call it, you know, they kind of look at this thing as, a, as an omen of disaster. It's seen before something terrible happens. There are a lot of people that do believe that the Mothman or something of similar nature has been seen uh, around the world and in other areas uh, since then, and even before then, uh, that can be compared to the Mothman. But it's kind of like a, a little bit of a disputed argument, like is it the same creature, is it you know the same type of thing? But you know, the idea of seeing a large bird or an omen of a thunderbird before something bad happens has kind of continued after uh, these events in 66 and 67. So it's kind of a, you know, if you want to consider those, maybe, but nothing in the Point Pleasant area that really has been legitimate, I would say. Yeah, I, I know you're speaking to. So it seems like it's sort of other people have picked up the Mothman meme, if you will, and 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 sort of try to apply it to other disasters and things like that. But as far as we know. This Mothman thing was sort of like an isolated incident as far as this creature and the creature sightings and then the disaster. Yeah, I mean, I feel, you know, my personal opinion is whatever the creature they were seeing in West Virginia at that time, um, you know, that specific entity, you know, once it was left, it is gone. And, you know, anything spotted elsewhere, you know, might be, you know, kind of cut from the same cloth of the of this type of unusual uh creature or entity but it's you know the the identical thing i don't think so yeah yeah that's that's kind of where i'm at on this too because it seems like it's a an isolated incident of sorts um now what about this story of injured cold i found this to be really amazing and and uh i'd asked a friend about it after i saw the movie and he, he he'd heard of it so it's not a completely unknown story but i'd never heard of this before so i guess uh share this tale of injured cold um well injured cold <clears throat> What's interesting, it's kind of a separate story of itself, but it does get associated with the Mothman just because of the time of its occurrence and the close proximity to Point Pleasant. Uh, these events took place predominantly in Parkersburg, West Virginia, uh, which is a little bit of a bigger city than Point Pleasant. Um, I want to say maybe 20 miles north or so, maybe even less than that. Uh, but what happened is... Uh, Around the same times of these sightings of UFOs, Mothman, all this weird stuff, it's kind of like just when you think things can't get any more bizarre, a guy from Parkersburg who's just an everyday kind of average guy, well-respected in his community, uh, basically publicly comes out and says that he had a very uh, intimate encounter with an extraterrestrial entity whose spaceship stops his car uh, or his truck on a highway uh, one night as he's heading home. 
and, and, and he has a very full-fledged, up-close, impersonal encounter with an extraterrestrial being who calls himself Injured Cold. Yeah, very weird, very weird. And then this encounter, sort of this this friendship, for lack of a better term, continues onward. Then over the next, uh, I don't know, months or years or something like that, right? That's true. Yeah, this was not like a one-time thing. This was a story that just uh, continued to develop and, and get weirder and weirder. I mean, it was um, probably the only incident that I can think of of a reincurring visitation of, you know, uh, of an entity that had a name, had a face, you know, was recognizable. There were people that corroborated uh, this man's story. His, his name is Woodrow Derenberger, the man who had these encounters. Uh, and he started uh, just, it, it was an ongoing thing to where he would have communication with this being called Injured Cold. He would come to his house. He would visit his children. He would, uh, he, he went on rides in his spaceship. I mean, it just kind of kept getting, um, you know, more elaborate uh, as uh, this story kind of unfolded to the public, uh, but it, it was kind of an ongoing, uh, like you said, maybe the best way to describe it is a friendship between just an everyday guy from Parkersburg, West Virginia, and an extraterrestrial uh, who called himself Injured Cold. Very weird, very weird stuff down there in Point Pleasant. And now, it, and it, that, just real quick, it yeah. sounds crazy too. Like, I mean, that 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 to me was the most kind of uh, not exaggerate, but that to me was the most uh, f fantasy uh, type of uh, story that we kind of covered in this. But the thing is, when you there's lots of uh, documents and research uh, that can corroborate the story. So it wasn't just like a guy making up stories and kind of you know telling yarns around a campfire. This guy was being investigated by the United States Air Force. Uh, NASA invited him. Uh, to their headquarters in Florida to, to speak to him in more detail about his encounters. So there were, you know, this was something that was taken very, very serious. There's, there's documentation of it. There are reports that were filed with the Air Force and with his family and non-disclosures and, and a lot of evidence that actually support his case. And even people that, again, would corroborate his wild stories. He would say, you know, this thing flew over my truck on this day. It landed. This, this is what happened. And he'd have 10 people you know, signing uh, sworn affidavits uh, corroborating his story. So that one kind of at first glance, you know, it sounds like, oh, just kind of a crazy story. But there is actually a lot of people at that time that took it very serious, including the United States government. So when you kind of start to look at that story, you start, you know, at first I think most people go, well, this is kind of wild. And then you start to, to look at all the evidence and you go, well, you know, something must have been happening. You know, there can have been 300 people lying, you know, from – friends to country, uh, uh, you know, bumpkin people to, to co-workers to, to Air Force uh, officials. You know, they weren't, they couldn't have all been in on it together lying. So there's got to be something to it because there is actually a lot of evidence with that case as well. Yeah, yeah. I found it really compelling. I, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, <laughs> I wasn't downplaying it. I thought it was pretty uh, remarkable. I, I definitely will be looking more into the, the whole injured cold story because it was so strange, but at the same time, uh, you know, more I guess more tenuous. I guess I don't know if that's the right word, but it's more tangible than than some of these other things because it seemed to go on for a while and have more more to it in a way. So definitely uh, interesting tale there. Now, when you went down to Point Pleasant, was it hard to find people that had actually seen the Mothman? Because you, you do have people in the movie that w had encounters with this creature. Was it like are they well known down there as as 
Mothman witnesses, or are they sort of like people you had to track down, uh, you know, through friends of friends type of thing? It is a little bit of both. Um, you know, there are some kind of like Mothman celebrity, quote-unquote, people out there that are kind of, you know, made a name for themselves in terms of being a part of the story. I mean, our main focus, when we, you know, one thing that we wanted to do was, uh, you know, we respected the John Keel book and, and the investigative nature of that book, but we did want to kind of separate ourselves from what had already been done before. Uh, so we were actually out to kind of look to interview a little bit more like scholarly people, professors, you know, engineers, uh, people that kind of had an outside uh, relationship with this story that could comment on it, that, that had a, you know, some uh, appropriate relationship to the story. But we were not trying to just find, you know, every uh, person who said they saw something. We did want to talk to, to some of the witnesses, but it wasn't our mission to kind of just have the film be told from just that standpoint. Yeah. Uh, we did interview a few people that had uh, some very close encounters with the Mothman. Uh, and, and I honestly, it was surprising that uh, we, we, we came across a lot of people that did witness this thing up close, but they would not talk to us um, usually for several reasons. One, uh, I would say, would be fear. I mean, I can, I remember at least five people, at least, that, uh, you know, someone would say, oh, you should talk to, you know, so-and-so. You know, they, they had a, an encounter with this thing back in 66, and, you know, you would talk to them and be very respectful, and it didn't matter what you said. They were not going to tell you a word, not out of, uh, you know, fear of being ridiculed or fear of being misrepresented, but just fear that that this thing was evil, that, you know, a lot of people out there think if they talk about it that this thing is going to come back. And there are a lot of people that have kind of locked this away in their past, and they do not want to talk about it. Uh, it's like a very – it's like a tragic uh, event to them. You know, it's like surviving a car crash, and no one wants to really revisit that. And there were a lot of people that we did meet, but that just, you know, didn't want to talk to us. And, you know, we were respectful – of that, and we didn't really want to push it with them because it was it was a very emotional. I mean, half of them, uh, even in telling us that they can't talk about it, would break down into tears. Wow. Yeah, and and even when we approached them without the cameras, like initially we approached them without cameras just to, um, you know, kind of uh, get a feel for it and a feel for what they were going to say. And even without the cameras, they didn't want to talk to us. And uh, and some of them even whispered when they were talking about it. So it was very definitely, um, you know. Um, in the back of their minds, I feel like still, you know, all the time. And what do you what do you attribute that to the the rumors of the whole curse aspect of it, or just that it was so bizarre and unsettling to them that they can't even bring themselves, like you know, like post traumatic stress, like what Matt was saying. Um, I, I mean, I definitely think that they're just scared. They're they're just scared of of it happening again. I think that a lot of these people still, you know, don't know what it is that they saw, and they're just genuinely scared about the whole thing. Yeah, well, I can imagine, you know, you have an encounter like that, and it probably flummoxes you for the rest of your life. Yeah. You know, you're bewildered by what you saw, and no one can really ever say. Now, what do they think of the the movie that came out about their, their town and everything and the and the experiences down there? What, what was the reaction to the film? Um, for, I think that, um, you know, they were... They were all, you know, happy that we, um, I guess a lot of times when, when documentaries like these get made, it kind of um, paints the town or paints the people in a, in a bad light. I think we, I think they were happy at, at the fact that we, you know, didn't do any of that. We just, you know, allowed them to tell their story, um, you know, brought in experts to tell us, you know, their scientific view of the whole thing and just allow, you know, trying to allow people to just make their own conclusions, which is what 
you know, they, the people of town have tried to do. They just tell their story and they want you to draw your own conclusion. They're not telling you what, what it is. They're not giving you a definitive answer. It's just these are the facts, you know, take what you will from it. So I think for the most part, I think everyone's, everyone that saw it, um, you know, definitely said that they're happy that, that that's what we did and that, you know, it was kind of an unbiased approach to the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely a fair and balanced, uh, although that expression's been <laughs> co-opted in an unfair way, but it's definitely a fair and balanced film for sure. Now, what about the Richard Gere movie, though? Were, were they, are they fans of that or are they kind of like, <laughs> you know, not, not really too happy with how, how that came out? Yeah, they, um, they're not very happy with the Richard Gere movie. <laughs> um, I mean, that was one of the first things we learned when we were out there and that we went out there a year before we shot anything just to kind of meet people because, you know, both Anastasia and I both come from backgrounds of working in the news and working on reality shows. And, you know, a lot of times there's this attitude from big kind of New York or L.A. companies where it's just, you know, you're, you know, hey, you have something, you know, a weird story. Tell us what, you know, tell us your whole life story. And, you know, you you don't know who we are. And then it's just kind of like this almost uh, just kind of a bad attitude, I think, that a lot of people that work in our industry do, that they just assume that people are going to want to divulge their entire life story to you, you know, uh, without even knowing who you are. When we first went out there, the reason we went out there was just to kind of meet people, let them know that we were kind of very down-to-earth people, that we were out to kind of tell a different kind of story on the Mothman. We weren't out there to kind of tell this glamorized, weird alien from outer space. You know, I remember one woman, uh, the first week we were out there, you know, I told her who we were and what we were doing, and I just remember her going, ha, no one's going to talk to you, you know, never going to happen. You know, like these people are sick of, you know, everyone who comes in here, you know, makes us look like idiots. And, you know, uh, the Richard Gere movie always comes up. A lot of people, you know, kind of were just unhappy uh, about uh, that film in terms of the, the, the townspeople. Um, but, you know, once we started telling them, once we started showing them some of the research we had done and some of our intentions, you know, when they saw that we were kind of, you know, we're talking about the, 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 the murder of Chief Cornstalk, the importance of the, the, the battle of Point Pleasant that took place there, some of the more historical aspects and how we were basically out there to tell the collective history of this town you know, from the weird stuff to the true stuff to the, you know, the, you know, undeniable things that have happened there, I, that opened a lot of doors for us. And, um, you know, it, what we looked to do was, was make a film that if you go to, if you've heard about the Mothman, you've heard about any of these weird stories on Point Pleasant, or if you visit this area and you want to know a definitive kind of collective um, overall idea of what happened and what went on out there, you can basically watch our film and kind of know almost every detail. Uh, and, and people really kind of appreciated that approach, that we weren't out to do the quick, you know, Hollywood 30-minute movie. I mean, the film that we made is long, and it's uh, exhaustive and informative, but it was for those intentions to kind of leave no stone unturned with this story. And, and just tell the story that the people out there wanted to tell. You know, we took a lot of cues from them of, you know, what's important for them to talk about, what's important for them to, to represent in their town. And the film is really, you know, kind of a perspective told from the eyes of, you know, those who witnessed it, uh, you know, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you, you kind of get that across, too, in the in the part where you talk about how, uh, you know, the local scientists or scientists in the area 
suggested that it was a, a sand crane or some kind of uh, crane that people were seeing it, and, and, and it sounded like the town and the people who saw it were kind of insulted that these outsiders had suggested that it was just merely some bird and they, and they were too stupid to figure that out. Which <laughs> yeah, I mean, across. you know, you had a lot of outside uh, college professors, uh, you know, from the outskirts. You know, Point Pleasant is kind of surrounded to a degree by, you got Marshall University, West Virginia University, Ohio State University in pretty close proximity, but they are kind of on the outskirts of this town, Point Pleasant kind of being in the middle. And you, you had some uh, college professors at the time saying, oh, these people are just seeing a sandhill crane, they don't know what it is. And, you know, you're, they're basically telling that to a bunch of, you know, country people who hunt and fish and live in the woods and the mountains every day. And it's kind of, uh, I think that's where most of the insult came from, where, you know, you're telling a bunch of people who are very connected to the earth or are very connected to the environment, and they know the animals of their area and, and the geography of where they live. It's very much a part of who they are as people uh, and their heritage and their history. And, you know, you're kind of almost using a misunderstanding of that as an excuse of them not knowing. I think that's where most of that frustration and anger comes from, that, you know, you're trying to tell someone who is an expert in that field, uh, you know, that, that they're, they're, mis, they're misreading into something that they know very much about. And and uh, having seen the movie, I was really surprised too by the how you get the guy. Uh, excuse me, you get the point across that it seems like these men in black appearances or encounters were much more prevalent than I had originally thought. So I guess tell us a little bit more about how extensive these you know appearances by the men in black were during during the big flap. Yeah, I think you know they just like the UFOs, just like Mothman. You know what started happening is uh, you know th this town even today. Uh, when we went out there five years ago, um, there's maybe 3,000 people in the town, <clears throat> which is not a large number, but it's not a small number either. But it's the kind of community where, you know, it sounds like a cliche, but everybody knows everybody. You know, the first week we were there, we would travel up to Ohio State University to interview some uh, some professors there about the, the the documentary, and we would come back, and when we would come back to the hotel, the hotel owner would say, Oh, how is Ohio State University? And we would say, like, how did you know we were there? And, like, they, people just knew, like, where we were, what we were doing every day. We didn't tell anybody, but this town is very close-knit. So, you know, we were the outsiders there uh, five years ago filming, and everybody knew where we were, what we were doing, because it's a small community. And, and so when what happened was, uh, you know, back in 66 and 67, when people started spotting men in black, you know, it wasn't uh, just that they were spotting these government people. It's just that there, there were these outsiders that were in their town that did not fit, you know, didn't dress like people from out there, dressed and talked and act like them. So, it, you know, I think people were very perceptive out there, you know, when there's something off in their community. So there was a lot of people kind of, walking around out there uh, and, and kind of, you know, showing up on people's doorsteps, taking reports of these UFOs and weird things that people knew, you know, were just not from this, uh, this immediate area. I mean, one, um, one specific, I'd say, key element is uh, there was a reporter in the area named Mary Heyer at the time, and she was a very well-respected individual in the community. She was kind of a shoulder to lean on for people. You know, these are, these are very sincere salt of the earth, like genuine American type people, you know, people that are very honest, very hardworking type people. And when these weird things started happening, you know, 
they were not stupid. They're not crazy. You know, their immediate reaction was just fear of like, I don't, I don't understand what's going on. You know, there's strange things that are going on out here, and it brings fear because it's fear of the unknown. So a lot of the, the the people in the community at the time would go to Mary Heyer to kind of lean on, look to you know, she was a reporter. She kind of traveled a little bit more outside of the area, kind of handled a lot of different subjects as a journalist, and I think they used her as a means to kind of uh, to, to go to, to, uh, to kind of uh, to, to express their, their concern about these things. And she kind of became this person to go to. And also um, what you'll find is, you know, it started with kind of Mothman. People would go to her, explain, um, you know, these weird sightings of a Mothman. Then it became the UFOs, and then when the men in black started coming uh, around town, a lot of people were reporting to Mary Heyer these strange kind of intrusions of privacy in their home or you know, in, on the roadway or, or in you know, uh, public places by uh, what you would call the men in black. Yeah, yeah, and he, he, she even had her own weird encounter, which was strange because it's like, you know, she you go from being sort of the documentarian of it, uh, her to to being an experiencer of the strangeness. I was like this. It, it, I was of the of the thought that maybe these were like government agents, but the more I saw in the movie, it seemed more and more like these something else, something even weirder was going on with these guys. I don't know. Very perplexing. The the men in black. It's true because it, what would happen is, I mean, uh, and, and when you talk about it sometimes it sounds hokey or goofy, but it's just like. It's each of these little things would top one over the other, you know. Like seeing a light in the in the woods is weird, you know. Seeing a flying man is weird. Seeing men in black, like these things, continually would top each other in terms of weirdness. I mean, even as you mentioned about Mary Heyer, you know, her experience with the men in black was not even your prototypical, you know, government agent type guys in suits uh, approaching her. She used to work out of the uh, county courthouse in uh, Point Pleasant. And, uh, you know, th this is probably months into it now uh, of hearing stories of men in black, you know, uh, UFOs, not really having any personal experiences herself. I, I, I do believe that she had several occurrences where she did witness uh, UFOs before this, but, you know, nothing with the men in black. And uh, what happens to her is one night, you know, late at night uh, as she's working in her office, um, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but I guess a miniature man in black, you know, a four-foot man walks into her office uh, in a suit. Uh, he looks like he's wearing a wig or he's, you know, just something strange about him. Comes in, asks her a bunch of weird questions about the unusual activity in the area, asks her directions to uh, a nearby city, and then before she can even answer, the guy grabs a pen off her desk and screams crazy wildly and runs out of her office. And that's kind of her own weird encounter with this thing. And it just sounds ridiculous, but, like, these things happen, and they're being reported by, you know, this woman who at the time is probably one of the most respected, uh, you know, well-to-do individuals in the area. And even herself, you know, has these events happen to her that are almost embarrassing to talk about. Yeah, yeah. It was really weird. It was uh, one of the more compelling uh, aspects of the film. So I highly recommend that part of the movie. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. I noticed you guys didn't get into 
uh, sort of the the whole thing with John Keel and how he wrote the book and how it sort of thrust this thing into sort of like a national spotlight, if you will. Is that a, a purposeful sort of thing, not to get into sort of the pop culture uh, phenomena that it became later? I'm s- say that again? Well, I noticed you didn't really, you never mentioned John Keel or anything in the book, and he's sort of, I mean, in the movie, and he's sort of the one who made made the whole story pretty famous and everything. Is that... Yes. Yeah, you know, it was intentional. It was uh, because, you know, there hasn't been much coverage of this story. I mean, when you look at books and films that have been done on this, you've got uh, John Keel's kind of authoritative, you know, Bible on the, the incidents, the Mothman prophecies, uh, which I believe was published in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then you have uh, the Mothman prophecies, the narrative film, which I have to say I enjoyed as a film. We were talking earlier about so many people not liking it. I, as you know, I'm a filmmaker who makes narrative films and documentary films. It is not the easiest thing to take a subject such as this, uh, turn it into a narrative, and keep all of these true elements. It's just you know, the demands of what Hollywood studios expect and things like that. It's very hard. So I actually have to say, I really enjoyed the Mothman Prophecies film uh, for, for what it was. Uh, but, you know, there's that film, there's John Keel's book, and then there's uh, a few other books out there. Uh, Jeff Wamsley, who we interviewed in our um, uh, documentary, uh, has a few books out there. Uh, Chad Lambert is another author who's covered the Mothman a bit. But there's not a whole lot of material out there on Mothman. You know, and, and when you mention Mothman, everyone always immediately associates John Keel with it. And even though, um, you know, he is kind of the authoritative, you know, first person to kind of break this story uh, globally uh, and kind of in a mainstream way, we wanted to do something that was just a little bit different, a little bit, you know, separated from that story. Obviously, we did pull from elements of his research and things like that, but we wanted to kind of identify herself as a, a separate type of film. And, and most people actually have responded pretty well to that because, you know, even though there's not a lot of content, you know, John Keel kind of covered most of what there was to be covered in his book. So a lot of people have kind of reached out to us and just said, you know, hey, your documentary was really not what we expected, but that was like a, you know, in a really good way, you know, because it kind of has a different approach than what's already been done. You know, a lot of what's done, I think, you know, Sci-Fi Channel and I think A&E have done some other coverage on Mothman. And it's been kind of, lately it's been kind of more commercialized, more horror movie, mainstream, you know, getting further and further away from the facts. And ours was, you know, meant to not really be a, mainstream entertainment quote-unquote type of film it was meant to be a very investigative look at this subject in a very earthbound serious way so it was kind of uh, we were trying to separate ourselves from him to a degree as our own thing but also um, not 100 percent you know yeah yeah exactly yeah it wasn't sort of uh it wasn't in a pejorative way yeah of course what's what's the sort of like i i still have a hard time because the I, I was laughing about this. Uh, the, the original like drawing of the Mothman that's like so famous is like a snowman with wings. It's just like this <laughs> round thing that doesn't even like <laughs> it's like a blob. So what is what do people actually describe this thing as? Because uh, there's very few witness drawings uh, that I've ever seen, except for you know, as I said, the snowman with wings. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean. Uh... You know, one, it's always described as a man with wings, but the, the interesting kind of detail that often kind of doesn't get left out, but like when you kind of just describe Mothman in passing, it's always man with wings. And of course, when you think of a man, you think of a face and a head. Uh, but when you get into the detail of Mothman, uh, one of the things that was a reoccurring um, kind of description from eyewitnesses and from different testimonies 
is that people could always describe its height, they could describe its color, they could describe the color of the eyes, which is always a deep burning red, but nobody could ever describe its face. Uh, so one thing that has kind of lingered is that uh, just this kind of, uh, you know, misunderstood or just kind of, it, it's a confusing kind of baffling way to explain it. But even when you talk to witnesses, you know, they describe it as a man, but they, they can't describe the face. So like people are unsure, like, if it even has a face, if it's just these two eyes resting above shoulders or if they're hovering there or if they're on a fixed kind of surface there. Like, people cannot describe the face uh, or remember a face. And, and, and again, it's kind of like some of the things we've been talking about. It sounds foolish or it sounds uh, silly or hokey, but uh, it, it, you just can't. It's like, it's like a headless type of thing, but it has eyes. So it's, it's, it's one of those things where... You can describe it, but you're, you contradict yourself in describing it by describing it. It's very weird. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 odd because you wonder what it what it is, and you try to put your mind to it, but it's so hard to really wrap your mind around because all you really ever hear is, like you said, "man with wings," and it's like I wish there were more witness drawings of it. But I, you, well, know. you know what's weird is. Uh, I haven't really, I haven't told many people this, but, uh, you know, after we did this again, you kind of like, you, uh, you learn more and more facts and things, even after the film is done. And I remember, uh, it was either reading something or talking to someone about, you know, other people, you know, I remember someone asked me, I think they said, well, have you ever had any type of encounter, you know, that you would compare to like the, you know, these people that they've described with the Mothman. And I, and I said, no, you know, my immediate reaction was no. And then like, for some reason, something kind of popped into my brain, almost kind of like a lost memory or a, or kind of a faded memory from like a long, long time ago. And and it's weird as I kind of searched my thoughts and I'm like, wait, what? something, you know, I say no, but something kind of sticks out in my head of like having some kind of weird experience. And I, and I did kind of recall this kind of vague memory I had of being very young and uh, as I mentioned, we, uh, I kind of grew up on a farm, and I had this memory of, of actually witnessing something pretty similar to how people describe the Mothman. I remember as a kid being in, a, kind of a, in the woods and this giant winged thing landing in a tree right next to me. And at the time, you know, I thought it was an owl or some kind of bird, but the, like, I won't even say what it was or put a label on it, but I do have this weird, vague memory of a massive bird landing next to me uh, in this cherry tree on this kind of farm I grew up on. And I remember being terrified of it. Just It scared the hell out of me because it kind of made this big flapping noise and it, it, it stirred up all of the leaves right next to me. And I remember running to, to tell my father about it and um, I remember telling him that I that he said, what did it look like? And I said it was brown, it had wings, it was really big. And I remember describing it as not having a head. <laughs> I remember, I remember <laughs> that. And I, and I, you know, and I, when I kind of recalled this memory not too long ago, I was like, you know, am I making this up or what? So uh, the next time I visited my father, I said, do you have any memory of me seeing some weird bird when I was a kid? And he's like, yeah. He's like, I remember you running to the house you know, saying that you just saw a massive bird, but it didn't have a head. And I was like, okay. So it kind of validated this weird memory I have. And, and, you know, it's a weird thing to talk about. But, you know, in remembering that I kind of had that little incident, you know, it kind of not brought validity, but it kind of just made me understand a little bit that, like, you know what, 
maybe what these people are seeing or describing is not so you know science fiction because you know I had something that would fall kind of under the same parameters and you know I'm no I saw it I was there and it was weird and just not describable but it doesn't make it uh, hokey if that makes any sense no absolutely yeah yeah it makes total sense and what I thought was interesting too uh, that I picked up from watching the film was that a lot of these people beyond the traumatic emotional effects from seeing this creature was uh, some odd physical you know, maladies that, that befell them after they witnessed the creature, which I thought was really interesting and maybe, you know, if we're ever going to get to the bottom of, of these mysteries, we need to sort of understand some of these clues and stuff. So, you know, what, what kind of weird stuff happened to these people physically? Something like sunburn and, and weird eye eye ailments and stuff? Uh, yeah, some of, some of them um, got, I guess, pink eye sunburns, um, just like weird... Um, weird rashes on their skin and stuff like that after they saw the Mothman, which is also why um, a lot of, like, scientists and stuff say that it might have been um, something, happen- ha- something having, like, radioactive, you know, something with radioactive whatever, you know, that's what they saw, that it was some sort of mutated bird. I think that that's why they started saying that it was a mutated bird and that it, it you know, carried carried uh, radioactive waves or something I don't know <laughs> something with radioactivity and that's why they had all these um, skin rashes and burns and stuff like that I think that that's where that came about that's yeah there are some people that kind of believe that that kind of lends credence to you know the theory that it was a mutated bird or chemically enhanced or had something to do with the chemical spills the fact that people were having physical and physiological reactions to uh, Mothman encounters you know, their eyes would swell up pink. They would have rashes or, or burns. You know, there are some people that say that that's, that's evidence of, you know, uh, coming in close proximity to uh, something that's been mutated uh, or chemically enhanced. So there's a lot of uh, biologists we talked to for the film that said, you know, if you came into close contact with the kind of chemicals that were spilled in that area, these are the reactions you would have, and they're the same kind of physical reactions that uh, Mothman witnesses had. Weird, yeah, yeah. I do feel like there's some kind of connection there with this with this TNT thing, but I'm not sure what exactly it might be because yeah, you that's wonder. What's difficult, yeah. That, that is what that's what's difficult when you kind of look to investigate this story. I think anytime someone goes to write a book or or, or do a film on this subject, you kind of have it in your that you say, all right, you know, I'm going to solve this mystery and figure it out. And what happens is you, you find all this evidence, and there's all these connections and correlations but there's never like that final one there's always these little pieces of you know little information that you can link mothman to cornstalk to thunderbirds to indian curses but then you're missing like the final piece or you can link mothman to the tnt plant and the tnt plant to chemical spills and government conspiracy and you know uh, the reaction of witnesses to the chemical kind of influence that would be expected from that type of interaction you know which is a lot but then you're missing one more thing to just kind of, you know, make it definitive and final. So that's what's frustrating with this story is that there are a lot of, you know, plausible explanations that you can kind of substantiate with research and facts, but, you know, there's multiples of them. You know, it's not just the one. It's not just the chemical spill bird sanctuary uh, thing. There, there, There's multiple kind of avenues that this could have all derived from, and it, it kind of spins you around in circles a bit. Right, right. What I find really particularly compelling, too, about the Mothman mystery, uh, and and probably why it it has such resonance with a lot of people in the paranormal community, too, is that, 
it really doesn't fit into any box uh, or perceived genre, I guess you could say, in the paranormal. I mean, I've talked to people in the crypto-terrestrial field, I mean, excuse me, the crypto-zoological field, and they really don't accept Mothman as sort of like part of the menagerie of crypto beasts, if you will. You know, there's Bigfoot, and there's, uh, you know, some of the other strange creatures that they're sort of uh, in the crypto-zoological realm, but they always sort of keep Mothman off to the side, like that it's it's a supernatural thing. It's a paranormal thing that's not a flesh-and-blood creature. It seems to me that's the point of view of a lot of people. Then you, you know, even the people in the UFO community don't embrace Mothman it's sort of like it stands on its own as a as a sole, you know, entity without its own genre. It really, it, I totally agree, and, I, and it really does. It almost becomes its own genre because it's just it's like a cross platform of so many things. It's it's curses, it's hauntings, it's you know, uh, it's psychological, it's physical, it's paranormal, it's spiritual. Uh, it crosses so many lines. Uh, I mean, I know for me, that's why I was kind of drawn to this because, you know, being uh, someone who's always been interested in the paranormal, my view of the paranormal is that, you know, it's really just an extension of uh, the world that we already, that we live in. It's just kind of, it's part of the unseen world that all of these things are connected, you know, spirituality, paranormal activity, you know, uh, all of these kind of uh, subjects that people categorize things in, I do believe they are all a part of the of one big kind of universal thing. Um, but I would have to say, though, in terms of the cryptozoological uh, uh, um, definition of it, I do agree that, uh, you know, you really can't put it into cryptozoology. You know, when I think of cryptozoology, I think of, you know, animals that are, you know, supposed to be extinct or not have been discovered yet. Uh, you know, things like Bigfoot, they're, they're physiological uh, creatures with, with DNA and with, you know, evidence. You know, they leave behind footprints and they leave behind hair samples. And you look at the chupacabras, you know, it leaves behind, you know, dead uh, victims. Uh, that, those are all things that I associate to cryptozoology. And Mothman, I would leave him out of that because to me it is more something of just a, you know, of a, of a metaphysical, of a spiritual, of a paranormal world uh, where, you know, I don't think this is some missing link creature or bird. I mean, it has been uh, theorized that it could be some type of pterodactyl type thing. There are a lot of people that describe the Mothman also as looking very much like a pterodactyl or a pterosaur. Uh, so there are, you know, there is that approach to it that some people do think maybe it is uh, related in, in terms of, uh, of some kind of lost animal. But for most of the people I spoke to, uh, this was something much uh, different. You know, I think when you see something, even if it's unusual, obviously if you see something that's a Bigfoot, you're going to be scared and terrified of it. But you're still, I feel like, going to have some kind of reaction of knowing that this is like a flesh-and-blood animal. Most people that saw Mothman did not view it as like a flesh-and-blood animal. It was kind of larger than that. It was like seeing a demon. It was like seeing an angel. Uh, so it kind of, I think that's one of the big reasons why it cannot be categorized like that. Well, you raise an interesting question there, and that's, you know, with the with the Bigfoot and everything else, uh, with some of these other mystery creatures, we do have hair samples or footprint samples or scat samples. I mean, do we have anything with regards to the Mothman as far as physical evidence, whether it's tracks or scratches or anything of, of that nature? 
You know, I don't think so. Not really. I mean, there's been some things out there, like nothing I think that's credible or substantial or that kind of holds true. You know, there are some people that will say they've, you know, hey, you know, I took a picture out my window and look at that shadow is the Mothman. And, you know, I just, any anytime those people start to kind of enter uh, the discussion, you know, and they're like, no, that's definitely a Mothman. It's like, all right, well, you have a picture of maybe something, but, you know, they're, they're very inclined to identify it as this thing, I guess, because no one has, uh, you know, so there are some people that will try to say that they, there is some evidence out there, but I haven't come across anything that I would hold as a substantial, legitimate uh, piece of evidence. I mean, you know, a lot of people actually, mainstream people that have seen the film have asked that quite a bit. You know, why is there no evidence? They actually have asked why we haven't included any evidence in the, in, in the film other than kind of, uh, you know, hearsay or personal encounter. And really, when it comes to this story, there, there really isn't any. There isn't much that kind of uh, lends any credence or that are you know, legitimate pieces of evidence that we could have included. Uh, you know, you look at the time frame, it's 1966-67. I mean, we've gotten some kind of ridiculous questions of like, why didn't anyone take pictures of this? And it's like, all right, well... You're asking why no one took a picture of a flying demon in 1966 <laughs> in the middle of the woods of West Virginia. Like, one, the time period, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, cameras that are just kind of, you know, there's not a lot of people, in my estimation, you know, just running around with cameras in the woods looking for a mothman, you know, at the time. And, as a, and even in terms, if you look at camera optics at the time and, and flash photography not even being that prominent, you know, it's... Uh, you're asking for something that almost can't be achieved, I would say. Uh, so really all you have to work with is really eyewitness testimony uh, and kind of secondhand tellings of the story. But, you know, that's something, in my opinion, is to not, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, well, eyewitness testimony is nothing. But, you know, it's different when, you, when you're going to actually sit down with one of these people. Uh, you know, these aren't actors. These aren't trained professionals. The people that we sat down with that said they had witnessed this creature, you know, the fact that they're sitting there and you can kind of look into their eyes and kind of make an in, instinctive judgment on them. You know, everyone we came across that I met, you know, I, I don't, I didn't get the impression anyone was lying to us. Like I said, there were people that were breaking down, crying, talking about it. So I can't say what they saw, but I feel like the people that did witness it, that we talked to, they believed that what they saw was this unnatural, dangerous creature. Like I didn't get the impression that people were, you know, pulling our leg or, or, or perpetuating a myth, you know, like, and to me, that is an important piece of evidence. I think, you know, the personal story, the personal connection, the, uh, you know, that kind of uh, retelling of the encounter is a viable means of evidence, in my opinion. Now, did the people who had encounters with the Mothman that you spoke to or that you read about, did they give the impression that it was sort of a sentient entity or more of an animalistic creature um it's a little it was a little bit mixed i'd say on the whole most of the people that i saw or that i spoke to that saw it kind of put it in the category of i'm not going to say like angelic in terms of you know being completely of god or spirituality but they put it on that level of just you know, a higher power, a higher being type of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, not something that was a wild animal for the most part. Um, you know, the only, the one witness we did talk to, uh, she didn't kind of 
describe it in that way, but her interaction with, with it was very kind of primordial in that, you know, this thing climbed up on her car, left scratches on her car, was screaming, freaking out, kind of like almost rabid, vicious, you know, kind of, uh, as you would think of like an animal attacking. Uh, the one, one woman that we did interview, you know, her encounter with it was kind of uh, barbaric and, and primordial, uh, but most of the others were very much uh, of a higher power type of feeling. That's eerie. So that would be creepier, I think, than running into a, an animal of some sort. Yeah, because you can kill an animal, but I don't know if you can. You know, I, don't <laughs> what, I don't know what you do with a demon or an angel. That's true. That's true. No, I, I I hesitate to ask, but having done the research here on the movie before the interview, uh, this has come up in a couple of articles. So I got to ask you about your assistant cameraman and and his his. his <laughs> His mental breakdown and the whole Ivanka Trump thing. I've seen Ivanka Trump. I mean, I can't blame this guy. She's gorgeous. <laughs> yes, for those who uh, are not familiar with the story, what what happened is, you know, every crew member, like we mentioned earlier, did have a weird kind of, some kind of weird reaction. I mean, I got sick. Uh, we lost hard drives. Anastasia kind of witnessed weird things in her hotel room while we were out there. Um, I actually, I even got pink eye in both eyes the week that our movie got released, which is weird. Uh, but probably the weirdest thing to have happened to any of the crew members uh, is uh, Justin Masler, uh who uh, is a good friend of mine and a very good guy, great guy. I've known him for years. Uh, shortly after the film finished, he did suffer a very severe, I guess what you would call a mental breakdown. Um, it was very, it was difficult. I mean, we we laugh about it because it is kind of kooky and weird. But, uh, you know, he, wa- he is and was a close friend of ours, and uh, we worked with him all the time. And, 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 you know, for outsiders, people will think, you know, there have been people, uh, or Justin, uh, you know, basically got arrested for stalking Ivanka Trump. And then when that happened, uh, he posted a YouTube video uh, saying that he thought there was extraterrestrial involvement. Uh, and a lot of people have asked about this. So, uh, you know, what I can say about it is that, you know, it's not fake. It's not a joke. You know, Justin is a very real person. He's a very serious person. He's an artist. He's a cameraman. He worked on our film. And uh, before the stuff came out publicly about the Ivanka Trump thing and about the paranormal uh, involvement stuff, you know, uh, before any of that became public, for years, Justin has kind of spoken to me and kind of, you know, confessed to me to a degree that, you know, he, after this film was done, he did feel like there was some type of higher power, extraterrestrial type of influence going on uh, in his life to where he was, you know, he would, uh, a very good friend of him, so he kind of, uh, you know, trusted me, and he, I was someone he can kind of come to talk to, and he was very serious about this, you know, for, for the last five years since we shot this, when we finished filming, um, you know, he has for a long time felt a, a weird influence uh, from some type of power or entity. I mean, the only way he can really describe it was kind of like the Woodrow Derenberger case, like the uh, injured cold case where it sounds crazy, it sounds wacky, you know, of extraterrestrial type of involvement. But, um, you know, he hasn't kind of gone into specifics with me with it, but he has made me aware of, you know, what he describes as a serious concern for some type of paranormal behavior that's been kind of plaguing his life since we shot this film. Wow. Is he doing okay now, or is he sort of uh, just riding? No, he's in jail. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, I mean, uh, he is, uh, you know, the weirdest thing that he did was he uh, he basically got 
arrested for stalking Ivanka Trump. And one of those motives that uh, one of the motives that came out kind of in court as to why he did this was that, you know, an extraterrestrial presence uh, influenced him to do this or guided him to do this. And like I said, it sounds crazy. It sounds ridiculous. You know, it sounds, you know, like we could have made this up out of thin air, but it, it's a very serious thing. I mean, it's serious enough to where he might do, uh, you know, jail time for this. And he has stuck to his story and he has not kind of broken the story of, of, of what he's been saying for the last five years, that there's just been some weird mind control alien stuff going on in his life. I honestly, you know, we used to be much closer friends because he was, uh, lived in this area uh, back when we shot the film. But after we uh, finished that film, he, he's moved around quite a bit. So we're not, uh, you know, as available to, to be around him as much anymore. But we have kind of kept in contact to him to a degree uh, just as a friend. But he has uh, struggled with this for years now. And, um, you know, it's definitely serious, and uh, we just hope things get better uh, for him and uh, that the whole kind of thing goes away. But I, we do know that he attributes a lot of the weird stuff that has gone on in his life and kind of the tragedy, and there's been a lot of kind of uh, ups and downs in that guy's life, and he does kind of attribute it back to the working on this film. I mean, before this film, you know, he was doing okay, and it was as soon as we got back, this was kind of – just a new turn in his life that that happened so yeah you know once the it, it sounds like it's not a publicity stunt because once you end up in in jail that's usually when you fess up that it's a publicity stunt so yeah there have been <laughs> people that have wondered you know it's, it's it is frustrating on our end too that you know there have been some people that are like hey is this a publicity stunt for your movie and you know the last thing we're trying to do is uh you know our whole approach to doing this film was to have it be the most grounded you know, investigative journalistic approach to these weird subjects. You know, so the last thing we're trying to do is kind of like call attention in a weird, bizarre way to our film because it's anything but that. I mean, anyone who kind of watches our film looking, you know, for like a horror movie or for a sci-fi film, you know, it's going to be disappointed because it is very much a documentary from a journalistic investigative uh, approach. So, you know, um, this whole kind of weirdness that's been circulating around it um, it's weird, you know, we don't, it's hard for us to react to it because we are personally attached to it. You know, like I said, uh, Justin uh, is and was a very good friend of ours. Um, you know, it's confusing because we don't know what's going on with him. But I, like I said, I will say that, you know, before this kind of became public, I was aware of his understanding and concern that what was going on in his life was uh, related to the paranormal things that kind of went on in this film and like, you know, uh, his involvement with the movie, uh, it just never became, it just didn't become public for, for years, basically. I mean, he's been struggling with this for a while. Uh, it, it only became public, unfortunately. I mean, at the, just the similar time that uh, the film got released. Yeah. Well, I wish him the best. So hopefully things turn out all right for him. You don't want to mess with those Trumps there. They're strange people. Yeah, I know. Uh, it, it is. I mean, it's bizarre. And, and you know what's weird is just, uh, I mean, it's just another chapter of just bizarre, weird things that happen. I mean, when you when you involve yourself, I think with this movie, I mean, you know, we have witnessed them firsthand. Uh, I've just had bizarre things happen ever since this film, uh, since we decided to do this movie. And uh, you know, so I'm not surprised that Justin has gone through this. They're obviously ridiculously extreme levels of, uh, you know, call it paranoia or, you know, paranormal kind of intrusion. Um, but uh, I can't speak 
too much about it because I don't know. I haven't talked to him. Like I said, the only thing I could say is that I, I was well aware of his opinion of, uh, you know, this being some type of, you know, he went through a lot of struggles since the film. He attributed it to the uh, kind of work on the film and then only, you know, recently has it become more kind of public nature just because of his problem uh, involving the, the you know, the, the Trumps, uh, that kind of it's became a little more mainstream, I guess. But, yeah, a lot of people have been asking about it, so it's, you know. All right, well, I don't feel so bad about it. Now, I'm going to feel bad asking about these two cats that were in the film, but they kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. Where'd, where'd you find the Frick brothers? <laughs> Stacy, you can answer. Oh, my God. Anastasia actually used to date both of them. Yeah. Wow. Uh-huh, both. <laughs> At the same time. <laughs> I'm sure they're very nice people, but... I don't know, something, that, that one on the left, he kept sort of like looking up over the camera, and it was, it was like, just look down, look down, Mr. Frick. They're interested. Are you going to be able to gather your composure and answer this, or what? Yeah. Um, well, uh, we met them when we went out there, um, the year before we started shooting. Um, they were... I think when we went out there, um, the Mothman Festival was going on, um, so they were kind of dressed as the men in black when we met them. Um, so we just started talking to them just because they were these two guys that were dressed like the men in black. But then they actually had a lot of information for us, and they knew a lot about Mothman and about just like, um, the, you know, the other incidents that had happened in the town. So, um, you know, they're kind of paranormal investigators, if you will. Um, they research a lot of different um, paranormal activities and stuff like that, and so we just thought that it would be a good idea to um, interview them and just kind of get their input on the whole thing. All right, we'll leave it. Yeah, they're out. unusual guys. They're 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 brothers that are uh, you know they're interesting guys. Um, you know, when we went out there, what happened was you know we would say, hey, we're looking for you know anyone who knows a lot about Mothman or this and that, and everyone would say, you got to talk to the Frick brothers. Have you talked to the Frick brothers? Do you know the Frick brothers? So we kept hearing about these Frick brothers, but didn't know who or what they were. And then uh, they they are actually, they're like a walking dictionary of Mothman information. I mean, a lot of the, uh, even some of the facts and research and, and things that are explored in the documentary, you know, came from their assistance of their uh, years of research. I mean, they've done a lot of, of legwork in this subject. And I think it's just a story that they are fascinated with. Uh, they're two paranormal investigators from Maryland, and uh, they're very much kind of a part of the Mothman story and, uh, you know, immersed in it. So, um, you know, we were trying to cover all angles of the story, the weird, the, the credible, the true, the, you know, the uh, the educated, the professional, the whatever. So they kind of just fit into another uh, viewpoint of the Mothman and someone who can basically speak of its uh occurrences yeah there you go i wasn't meaning to besmirch them they just were they you know they just seemed like they came straight out of central casting or something they were... oh yeah no they definitely stand out everybody <laughs> always wants to know who the frick brothers are i mean we're thinking about uh, doing a whole frick brothers tv show or something for vh1 maybe <laughs> just make sure he knows where the camera is <laughs> yeah all right well uh you know to, to sort of like wrap the whole thing up at the end of the day, what do you think really happened there in 66 and 67? I mean, you've done an extensive amount of research into this. You made an amazing film on it. I mean, what's your, you know, opinion on what actually happened there in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, back during the Mothman flap? 
Well, this is the, it's funny. I mean, this is, uh, it'll sound like a cliche, and this is kind of the hardest part where, you know, you've done years of research, you've made a film that's, you know, where we set out to kind of make the most thoroughly investigative look at this subject. So everyone always wants to know, like, all right, you've done all this research, you've done all this work, like, what, you know, is your answer? So, like, what is it? What was it? And um, it's the most frustrating thing in the world because uh, it's so hard to really put your finger on one thing. I mean, I know, you know, for me, you look at the few different possibilities. You know, it's, you know, is it a mutated bird? Is it some type of extraterrestrial entity? Is it government-related? You know, one thing, uh, when I used to work as a uh, more active kind of journalist uh, working and writing on the paranormal, you know, one kind of inside person that I always used to kind of use uh, for information and uh, things like that. He used to always say to me that, you know, anytime the government is involved or anytime the government is even like, you know, within within arm's distance of a story, you can always pretty much assume or blame them that they are the ones probably responsible. So, you know, for me, going through the research, I do think that there's too many correlations and connections to the fact that you've got a secret government base, you know, with rumors of a drift of weird things going on there. You have it kind of on a bird sanctuary to where chemicals leak, uh, you know, into the environment that are hazardous, that can mutate people and animals. And you've got people saying that the, you know, the, the base is structured and built by the same people who built Area 51. I mean, to me, that always kind of stood out as the more, not feasible or realistic, but just having the most credence of connecting kind of storylines and pieces. The fact that you've got chemical influence, the government, the fact that the creature was spotted predominantly in the area of the TNT plant, you know, I think that kind of says something. Um, you know, honestly, in all the research I've done, there's nothing that you know, leads me to definitively put a label on it or say Mothman was definitely this or that. But I do feel like that story, you know, those kind of connections, the government, the building, the mutations, the chemical spills has to kind of, for me, ring uh, the most true in terms of a, a possible uh, scenario of what could have created uh, this whole thing. And what about you, Anastasia? Because you, you come into this, you know, with – Less of a of a background in the paranormal. Matt's clearly, you know, been been you know knee deep in this paranormal scene for a while. You're sort of uh, the outsider to this. What do you think happened down there? Well, I mean, I don't, I can't say for sure what happened down there. I know that these people saw something, and I I know that they believe that they saw something that you know was something that might have been paranormal. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, there's there's way too many coincidences for me to just kind of put it aside and say, you know, these people are crazy. Um, so I definitely think that they saw something. Was it a mutated bird? Was it a demon? Was it an angel? I have no idea. But I definitely believe them when they say that they saw something. Yeah. Now, Matt, what do you think of the whole idea that this is somehow connected to the bridge collapse? Because, quite frankly, I'm very skeptical of that. And And even though I host a paranormal show, I definitely fall into the realm of, uh, you know, cynical <laughs> paranormal enthusiasts. And to me, I, I feel like it. The, I feel like they're completely unrelated. I feel like the bridge collapsed and people need to, you know, to put order into chaos. So in their minds, it somehow connects 
that this creature was there and then the disaster happened. But I mean, you've obviously looked at this extensively. So what do you what do you think the connection between the two events really is? You know, it's uh, it is hard to say, and it's kind of like uh, you go back and forth. You know, like the skeptic in you kind of disproves it, and then the kind of uh, journalist investigator in you kind of gives it. Well, like you know, maybe there's something to it. I mean, I think you know personally, I kind of would have to agree more uh, on on your viewpoint that it is a separate incident. Um, you know, I think that bridge would have fallen uh, regardless. Uh, you know, in terms of the investigation that went on, in terms of the engineering malfunctions. Uh, that were discovered um, that, you know, that that it was probably pretty grounded in reality of, of why that thing went down. Um, you know, you can't you can't shove aside the fact that, you know, there are people that uh, that we talked to that, you know, saw people on the bridge, government people on the bridge. I mean, there's also a lot of there was a lot of talk that people heard an explosion before the bridge went off, you know. So there are some people that believe that there was some type of detonation or that there was some type of, uh, you know, people heard an explosion before that bridge had fallen. Yeah. So there's a lot of kind of, that's where it gets really clouded to where, you know, uh, people mix in the, the myths and the, the legends and the, the paranormal stuff with, you know, the real fact that 46 people died and a bridge fell. I do also think that... Um, you know, aside from seeing lights over the bridge, seeing men in black on the bridge, I think for most people, why they put a correlation between the bridge and the paranormal uh, incidents is because, you know, the, the abrupt halt of the paranormal activity once the bridge falls. I think that, for most people, is why they attribute the two, because when that bridge falls, the paranormal activity goes away. And I think a lot of people look at that as like, you know, you know, mission accomplished, or, you know, like that's the end of this, that, you know, all of these things were here and either caused it or, or, or had a hand in it, and now that it's happened, they're gone. And I think that's, you know, from an outsider's perspective, I think that's why a lot of people attribute to it. But I do, you know, uh, it's a very real thing that happens. And it's also hard, though, because, you know, I've had a lot of weird things happen in my life, uh, you know, in dealing with the paranormal. And at times, it, it can be confusing to distinguish, you know, at what point, you know, is it a coincidence or is it not? You know, or what parallel is there to one thing or the other? I do always try to give everything a pretty fair uh, shake in terms of probability and possibility. So I'm not going to say that the bridge collapse was 100% not related to these events, uh, but I'm also, you know, uh, going to say I'm, I'm going to lean more towards the fact that this was just a, an everyday kind of uh, unfortunate tragedy, but I won't uh, rule out 100% that uh, was not involved because, you know, even though there is evidence uh, supporting why it did fall, that it was a very uh, grounded reason, you know, a, uh, a fracture in an eye bar, you know, due to rust and kind of traffic and, and weight of cars on the bridge, that is, uh, it's evidence, uh, but you still have to give some kind of percentile of, of possibility that, you know, there was something else involved. Yeah, absolutely. We can't rule anything out. That's that's the that's the story of the paranormal. Yeah, you just never know, you know. What's next uh, for you guys at Redline Studios? Uh, you know, what are you working on? Anything else in the paranormal realm, or or some other uh, films that might be of interest to uh, the folks listening? Well, after uh, you know, after getting pneumonias and pink eye and having friends go mentally insane, <laughs> uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break from the paranormal. I think um, 
We are uh, right now. We're, we're in production for a few different things. Um, we are trying to bring more work back to this region. Our experience in West Virginia was very uh, was very great. Uh, we met a lot of great people, a lot of down to earth, sincere, honest people. Those are the kind of people that we like to work with. You know, working in film and television, it's hard to work with. You know, upstanding, honest people that you can trust, and, and the kind of nature of people out there is something that we respond to. So we were trying. We're actually working on uh, a few things. One is we're doing a documentary, another documentary that's called Last of the Breed. Uh, it's about bluegrass uh, musician Dave Evans. Uh, for people who've seen the Eyes of the Mothman film, the end credits is, is a song by Dave Evans, uh, and we met him through the Mothman project by licensing a song of his. And in kind of that process, we uh, kind of found our next story. Uh, Dave Evans is a kind of a pretty well-known bluegrass musician who's kind of had an interesting life. Uh, he went to prison for 10 years, and it kind of stifled his music career. Uh, and that's going to be one of our next films. Uh, if people are interested in that, they can visit lastofthebreed.tv. Uh, but that'll be our next documentary. We're also actually coming back out to West Virginia to work on a musical series. Uh, people from that area will probably be familiar with a musical program called Mountain Stage. That's been one of the longest-running um, live radio music programs on NPR for the last 25 years, and we're going to be working with them to do a kind of documentary uh, reality musical series uh, so those are two projects. Uh, as, in terms of the narrative world, we are also doing a action zombie movie in the next uh, few years, as well as a uh, actually another film about West Virginia, about the, the last uh, public hanging that took place in West Virginia. So we're, we're actually uh, we've got some things going on that will should bring us back to that area. Nice, nice. Sounds good. How about you, Anastasia? Anything else going on? Uh, well, I'm working on all those same projects, <laughs> producing. All those same projects that Matt just talked about. So it's right. been busy here. Sounds good. And where can folks pick up Eyes of the Mothman? Uh, anybody interested in Eyes of the Mothman can uh, go to eyesofthemothman.com uh, and, and watch trailers and also find links to places you can buy it. Uh, we are uh, distributed through Virgil Films. Um, that's our distributor. Uh, but also people can uh, – it's available in some uh, local Best Buys. Uh, if it's not in your local retailer store, you can also go to Target.com, uh, Walmart.com, Best Buy.com, Amazon.com. Most retailers uh, online are carrying the film, uh, if not in your uh, local store. Awesome, awesome. Well, Anastasia and Matt, I can't thank you guys enough for coming on the show and uh, really sharing your insights into the making of this movie and the uh, the amazing story of the Mothman itself. Sounds like you guys had a lot of fun making the movie, and, and really uh, I'm envious of you to have the chance to go down there and dig into this and, and get to know the people who really uh, have lived the Mothman story. So I highly recommend the film for folks to uh, check out. It's really amazingly comprehensive as matt had said uh it's quite long but it's worth it and uh you don't realize how long it is as you're going through it because every step along the way is, is takes you down a different avenue that is quite interesting and and you know you see a lot of paranormal movies at least i do see a lot of paranormal documentaries and to be quite honest a lot of them are crap they're filmed like crap and uh you know you can just tell they're made by amateurs that's not the case here with this movie this is really professionally well made and just you know, could easily turn up on TV on any channel out there because it's that well done. So kudos to you guys on that. Thank you very Thank much. You. Yeah, we, we worked very hard on the film. I mean, we did try to 
make this, um, you know, have as much production value. We, we, you know, a lot of documentarians kind of do use that as a crutch of, oh, I'm making a documentary, this doesn't have to look good or sound good. And we really put a lot of work into having it be, you know, both, you know, investigative, detail-oriented, but also at the same time, you know, very polished and, uh, you know, theatrical at the same time without being, uh, you know, theatrical in the sense of that it's not true and uh, fact-oriented. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, the paranormal community needs more filmmakers and films like this that, you know, give not only the uh, the story a fair shake, but present it in a way that people can really enjoy. The production values are outstanding. So, once again, highly recommend the film, and thanks once again, guys, for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks to Matthew Pulowski and Anastasia Constantino for coming on the show and sharing tales from the making of Eyes of the Mothman. You can find out more about the film at www.eyesofthemothman.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, since things worked out so well last time around with skipping listener feedback to take care of in-house notes, we're going to do the same here once again, and hopefully... This will be the last in-house notes at the end of the show, updating you on what has become the BOA Audio Crisis Center. As I told you last time on the program, we are switching over to our new audio host slash distributor, Cyber Ears. You can find out more from them at cyberears.com, C-Y-B-E-R-E-A-R-S.com. We are about 90% done with the big switch. And I know a lot of folks out there are probably sitting on their hands right now wondering, what the hell, man, how long does it take you to switch your archive from one site to another? Well, it takes quite a while, my friends, because we also, as I noted last week, had to take out all of the copyrighted music and replace it with the generously donated music from BOA Audio listeners. That takes time in and of itself. And then... To upload all the new episodes to Cyber Ears has taken quite a while. We're talking about 175 plus episodes, folks. And I did the math on that. It took me about three or four hours to upload about a dozen episodes, maybe 20 episodes. So we're talking quite a while here. And believe it or not, I have other things going on in my life. I work at a regular job. And I'm trying to produce BOA audio at the same time. So all these things have to be done sort of piecemeal over the days and weeks as we roll onward. But as I said, we're about 90% done. I believe we have maybe five more episodes from BOA audio season five to upload. We have about five from BOA audio season six to fix up and upload. And we got a handful from season one that somehow fell through the cracks. But we're really close to wrapping up the project now. Once that gets taken care of, fixing up the iTunes feed and fixing up the links at Banal of America really is only a matter of time. Yes, it'll probably take me a few hours to take care of that, but nowhere near the entire length of this project. It has been quite the project. It has been a massive undertaking. want to give a big thanks to Jeremy Vaney, who has helped me out in a big way by lending his time and support during this process. I really should have done a better job of conveying the situation to uh, 
all you guys out there and all the folks who visit BOA, because I've been getting emails constantly since the end of April, since the archive went down, from people wondering what the hell's going on with specific episodes. You know, they're looking for the William Zabel episode, they're looking for the Dr. Joy Pugh episode, or a whole bunch of other shows, and they're writing and asking me where the hell is BOA Audio. I write them back and let them know, but I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are really flummoxed at this latest turn of events. So I want to get that straightened out as soon as possible, and I don't want to give a timeline or a deadline on this, but I'm really, really hoping we can get it wrapped up either this weekend or next weekend. But there's other things on the horizon that I want to talk about as well. I kind of teased it at the beginning of the show, and that is this summer session that we are on here for BOA Audio. Now, this episode here with Matthew Pulowski and Anastasia Constantino was taped way back in March. That's the last of the old, quote-unquote, episodes you're going to hear, because right now, on June 3rd, I've already taped one episode. You'll be hearing that in a few weeks. But I can tell you that BOA Audio has locked in a slew of guests to be taped this month. I've already got five interviews scheduled here for June, waiting on two more interviews. So by the time June is all said and done, we'll have eight new shows in the can. We're going to be welcoming back some of our old friends. You're going to be hearing from Peter Robbins. You're going to be hearing from Paul Kimball. You're going to be hearing from Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman, our old buddies there. That's going to be a laugh riot. And we've got a bunch of other folks lined up for BOA Audio that you've never heard on the program before, covering some seriously wild stuff. So for all those folks who have been sitting idly by over the last few months, gritting their teeth, chewing their fingernails, worrying about the future of BOA Audio, folks, rest assured, the rumors of our demise are greatly exaggerated. BOA Audio is not going anywhere, and we've got a ton of great shows lined up for you over the course of this summer. Thank you all for your support of the program, folks. You guys are the best. And I really do appreciate all of the concerned and supportive emails I've been getting from the great BOA Audio listeners. Speaking of which, if you want to get in touch with me, that's simple. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com and click the contact button, or you can join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. It is the official BOA forum, our paranormal playground. Lots of great conversations going on there about not just the world of the esoteric, but also pop culture and sports as well. Come on over and join in on the fun at the US of E.com. And of course, I'm also easy to find on Twitter and or Facebook. Just punch in Banal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, and you'll be able to find me there. Poke me, follow me, befriend me. It's all good. We'd love to have you as part of BOA's online circle of friends. Provided that everything is up and running on the next edition of the program, we will bring back BOA audio listener feedback in a big way, I promise. So stay tuned for that on the next edition of the show, and keep on sending me 
those emails and letters. Up next, let's thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Jovi, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our contributing cartoonist, Annie Carolin, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. Tons of stuff up at BOA since the last time you heard me, including an all-new Paranormal Apostate by Bruce Pretty, an all-new Trickster's Realm from Regan Lee, an all-new Grey Matters from Leslie, a text interview with Jim Mars, courtesy of Richard Thomas's Room 101, and an all-new edition of Fortean Ramblings by Tony Morrill. So, five new columns from the outstanding BOA staff. Head on over to Banal of America and check it out. We say it week in and week out here on the program, but it is true, my friends. If you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns at Banal of America, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Normally, this is the part of the program where I take off my hat and pass it around to the BOA Audio listeners and ask you to make a donation to help keep the whole operation up and running. But this time around, we're going to continue with the theme of the last few weeks and ask you to make a donation to the film Beyond Best Evidence, The UFO Enigma. This is a project that BOA is working on with our buddy Paul Kimball from Red Star Films. You can find out more about that at Indiegogo.com slash UFO. Indiegogo, I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O dot com slash UFO. Head on over to Indiegogo. Find out more about Beyond Best Evidence, the UFO Enigma. Folks who make a donation can get a whole variety of bonuses and perks courtesy of their donations so do please check that stuff out. We've only got about two weeks left here on the fundraising drive for Beyond Best Evidence, so that might be a good way to segue into what's coming up on the next edition of BOA Audio. Folks who have been waiting, you know, three weeks for each episode are going to be happy to know that we're going to rush out the next installment of BOA Audio because our guest is going to be my good buddy Paul Kimball. And we're going to be talking about Beyond Best Evidence. We're going to be talking about the world of ufology. And we're just going to be cutting loose in general and having a jam session. So stay tuned for that on the next installment of BOA Audio. I am going to work very hard to get that one out to you a week from today. So keep your eyes peeled for the next installment of BOA Audio featuring Paul Kimball. And on that note, we close the book on another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big thanks once again to Matthew Palowski and Anastasia Constantino. Since this is the very, very, very end of this installment of BOA Audio, I feel like now I can reveal to folks that you can check out the film on Netflix. So if you've just listened to this interview and you're dying to get your hands on Eyes of the Mothman and you're a Netflix subscriber... Head on over to Netflix streaming, and you'll be able to watch Eyes of the Mothman right now. I didn't mention this at the beginning of the program, but I know we're reaching the hardcore BOA Audio listeners, so I wanted to give you that inside tip on how you can check out Eyes of the Mothman if you are a Netflix subscriber. Nonetheless, thanks once again to Matthew and Anastasia for coming on the show, and thanks, of course, to the amazing BOA Audio listeners. You guys are awesome. You have supported us through what has been the most tumultuous season of the program in quite some time, and your 
support is truly appreciated and is something that is rendering me humbled day after day and week after week. You guys are so supportive, so diligent, and so loyal. I really, really appreciate it. And I can only really back up my words with my actions. And that's kind of where we're at here heading into June. As I said moments ago here on the NCAP, we've got almost eight interviews already locked in for the month. We're not going anywhere, folks. I've been saying that at the end of the show for the past few months, and at times even I was having a hard time believing it. But I've got a second wind. I'm feeling more focused than I have in quite some time, and I'm really looking forward to producing some awesome interviews for you here over the next few weeks and months as the summer rolls on. I do it thanks to all you guys' support. So thank you once again for everything you do for this program, and thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benal, thanking you for listening and signing off.